0: to the February 17th edition of the Global News Review. I'm Patrick Ryan, President of the Tennessee World Affairs Council. And I am here today with Ambassador Dick Bowers and Dr. Breck Walker. Good afternoon, gentlemen.
1: Good afternoon, Patrick. Breck. Hello, How Pat. How are good you? To,
0: good to see you. Hopefully you're uh, staying uh, uh, warm and, and toasty out of the ice and snow and,
2: and the more to come uh, later today.
1: Are you in Florida, uh, Breck?
2: I am. I'm in Florida, and the temperature is in the uh, mid-30s, and it feels like a heat wave compared to what you all are going through.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's getting nippy. We're supposed to have some more snow this afternoon this evening, so we'll see what happens.
2: And then cover that with
0: some more ice.
1: Yeah. So what we need so, is just keep the power on. That's the main goal.
0: So uh, in, in four months, when people are watching the uh, archive version of this uh, Global News Review, they'll, uh, they'll think back to uh, February and, and our... Nashville uh, storm, but I guess it's uh, nothing in comparison to what's going on in Texas. Yeah,
1: and Texas. Rick, you, you've, brothers, got,
0: you've got uh, family. There? live in
1: Texas and they've been out without power. In Houston, they've been out, no power for two days so far. Well, and uh, still no, no power, power
2: and no, no power and having to boil the water. Uh, the water uh, system is uh, not filtering as it should.
1: Wow. So you had a scarf on, Pat. You took your scarf on. <laughs>
2: Well, maybe
0: we'll maybe we'll get to get to that later on, but uh, let's uh, let's jump into a couple of things. Let me mention uh, to uh, our friends that uh, we've adjusted our registration process, so uh, no longer will you have to go through Eventbrite, uh, that uh, seemed to present some obstacles. So now it's a direct link to Zoom. Uh, I'll just mention that we did have um, our registration system through Eventbrite to give you the option of becoming a member of the World Affairs Council. Or making a donation when you signed up for our programs, but since Eventbrite uh, presented some obstacles, you go direct to Zoom. But please keep in mind that we would like you to become a member of the World Affairs Council, and uh, if you're able to to uh, to make a, a gift to the council, uh, you can go to our website tnwac.org/slash/donate, and uh, it, you know five dollars a month um, to enjoy the programming we bring and what we do for the community, uh, education outreach, and so forth. And let me thank uh, Sally Smallwood, who registered today uh, as a member. And I think uh, Sally is with us in the audience today. So thank you, Sally, for becoming a a member of the World Affairs Council. I'd like to uh, bring up a couple of calendar items. Uh, We've just added uh, our uh, Spring International Career Panel for March 23rd. And uh, this will be on the theme of uh, Women in International Law. Uh, Professor Susan Haynes, a member of our board, is putting together a terrific panel of uh, international legal professionals from around the world. So the start time of this program uh, will be 1.30 p.m. Central Time to allow for participants on the panel who hail from such places as uh, London, Paris, Beirut, Cambodia, and uh, some other uh, lawyers who will be checking in. So you have an opportunity if you are interested in uh, women's uh, role in, in the legal profession, uh, women who are accomplished, uh, serving in uh, positions uh, in the judiciary in different countries and as attorneys, uh, you want you don't want to miss that. So that's women in international law. Our international career panel. We are uh, dovetailing that with a panel on diplomacy. Uh, we'll be talking with uh, diplomat in residence Alan Dubose, who will talk about the U.S. foreign service and. and Uh, jobs at the U.S. State Department. That will be uh, two days later, March 25th, at our regular time for career panels at uh, 5.30 p.m. So just keep up with our newsletter and calendar and you'll see those things on there. And don't forget, next week on February 25th, uh, we'll be hosting a conversation with Kelsey Davenport, who is the Director of Nonproliferation at the Arms Control Administration. And we'll be talking about the Iran nuclear deal and the, uh, the timeline for getting something done on returning to the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or as Ambassador Bowers is fond of saying, the JIC POA. and uh, the, uh, there's, there's a clock running on that. So uh, Kelsey Davenport will be here to uh, talk about that. So that's February 25th. I'll look at that on our calendar as well. Okay, Dick, uh, over to you, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll let you talk about the, the topics today.
1: All right, we're going to do uh, our normal three topics. So first, is comes with early obstacles for Biden's foreign policy. So the president's off to a running start, and how's he doing? Secondly, France and the Sahel, and Sahel is a large swatch of Africa, and there's stuff going on there that's kind of critical in the long run. And finally, the World Trade Organization gets a new face, the first time an African, and the first time a woman, has become the head of the WTO.
0: Interesting developments in, the, in, in these international organizations, and, and we're happy to, uh, to talk about them so people, uh, you know, you wouldn't see these normally in, in the, uh, the news every day, but uh, these are important events, the uh, events in Africa and also what's going on in the World Trade Organization. Brett, do you want to uh, give us the question of the week?
2: I will, Pat. Uh, The question of the week, uh, we'll give the answer at the end of the program, but the question of the week is, the leader of this country, head of the nationalist Bharatiya Janata Party, which henceforth I'll just call the BJP, this leader has pushed to change school curricula to downplay the country's secular roots, which reflect the country's founder's goal to promote peace between the majority Hindus and the sizable Muslim minority, and other religious communities is the answer A Pakistan, B India, C Bangladesh, or D Uzbekistan? And again, the answer at the end of the program. Pat, thanks.
0: All right, great. Well, let's uh, let's jump right into our uh, first topic, and uh, we're going to talk about the uh, the Biden administration. We talked about foreign policy uh, in general in the Biden administration in the past couple of. Uh, um, our uh, global news reviews. But uh, today we're gonna to talk uh, specifically about some of the, uh, the obstacles uh, to what's going on in uh, foreign policy in the administration. And uh, Brett, I, I think you've got the lead on this. So over to you.
2: Thanks, uh, Pat. Well, Pat and Dick, uh, the three of us, I think on this program uh, through the past several months have been uh, consistently critical of the Trump administration foreign policy with a few exceptions here and there. And you know, we all three have welcomed Biden's election with big smiles and open arms, because we see it as the return of professionals to the State Department, the Defense Department, and the intelligence agencies. So it's probably a good time to discuss just how difficult it is gonna be for the Biden team to achieve success on any meaningful scale. And there are two articles that have just come out that touch on that topic that uh, I think we all thought would be good to uh, highlight. One is an article from this past Tuesday in the Wall Street Journal by uh, Walter Russell Mead. Uh, Walter Russell Mead is a well-known foreign policy academic that used to teach at uh, Yale, currently is teaching at Bard College, has published a lot of books, uh, and he wrote an article, a column, titled, uh, Biden's Rough Start with the World. And Dr. Mead suggests that the Biden administration is, may find itself unable to make much progress on its key objectives. Many of those objectives, of course, are the polar opposite of where the Trump administration was trying to take us. So let's take just one of of Meade's examples, which is Biden's hope to improve relations with Europe. Now, clearly, and we've talked about this, the Biden administration will strike a much more collaborative tone than the Trump administration did. Uh, The Biden administration will emphasize the importance of resetting relations uh, with the EU, making it clear that the US is 100% committed to NATO and urging a joint approach with Europe on a whole host of issues, not the least of which would be climate change. But Meade points out that even before Trump, Europe had been tiring of America's hectoring moralism and big brother brother attitude of knowing more than anyone else. Very recently, French President Emmanuel Macron criticized the quote, wokeness of American cultural life and said that importing those attitudes into France would be a threat to the French way of life. And Pierre Trudeau of Canada has said similar things recently. Now, the Europeans, way back since the day of AusPolitik under uh, Brandt, uh, have adopted very pragmatic, consistently adopted very pragmatic positions in prioritizing economic relations with Russia and China, and will undoubtedly oppose any substantive Biden administration efforts to use uh, pervasive economic sanctions to punish human rights abuses in China or Russia. And then um, also very recently in the last week, uh, the U.S. Trade Representative's office announced that Trump's tariffs on European food products, such as wine and cheese, will be around for a while. And Biden has recently spoke about embarking on a Buy America program to to promote jobs in the United States, all of which is going to leave Europeans wary of U.S. trade policy going forward. So Meade says this group hug that Biden hopes for uh, with Europe uh, may be a ways off. And similar trends can probably be expected uh, in Asia, where, for example, India and Japan do not seem to be following the American lead to isolate and sanction the military government in Myanmar, where because they have important economic uh, interest uh, at risk. So Meade's conclusion is this, and I'll I'll quote this part from Meade. The Biden administration has an ambitious agenda, and many allies prefer a quiescent U.S. to an activist one. Now, his metaphor, I love this metaphor, uh, his metaphor, Meade's metaphor, is a restaurant menu at the Uncle Sam's World Order Cafe. Meade writes, quote, some of this cafe, some of its customers would order a double helping of security protection with a side of development assistance, but hold the human rights, some would want no security at all, merely the house salad of mixed green policies with a nice with a nice light dressing of human rights on the side. Close quote. So, mean may be suggesting that to be successful, the Biden administration must make multilateralism more than a slogan. They can't be uh, a leader in every instance. They have to listen. To our allies, which of course reminds me of the quote widely attributed to Martin Luther King, for one, but slightly modified by me here There go my allies, I must follow them, for I am their leader. The second article is by Jessica Matthews uh, in the uh, magazine Foreign Affairs. Her article is entitled Present at the Recreation. I love that title. So she argues that Joe Biden's message has been. Trump's approach to foreign policy is absolutely an aberration. And under my Joe Biden's leadership, we will, we will be back to the head of the table. Uh, but Jessica Matthews argues that uh, returning to the pre Trump status quo, though, is not in all likelihood going to be possible. And she says that because when folks outside the US look at what American leadership has looked like over the last 20 years, well, it, it's not good. You can start with the 2003 invasion of Iraq and the destabilization of the Middle East that follows. You can talk about the 2008 financial crisis that began in the United States and spread throughout the world. You can talk about our failures to end the war in Afghanistan and to build a uh, uh, diverse, more democratic uh, government in Afghanistan. You can talk about our incoherent policy in Syria, and you can talk about our inability to forestall or counter counter Russian and Chinese aggression. You can talk about our poor handling of the COVID pandemic. You can talk about a political system that is not working and is subject to breathtaking shifts in policy. Which, uh, so the allies would say, what's to trust here? Why should we follow, much less listen? Where is the track record that's impressive uh, that the United States has laid out for us in a historical, in a recent historical sense? So, what Biden regularly calls the power of our example is nothing like what it used to be, or so says Jessica Matthews. Her message is, it's a long way back for America and American diplomacy to regain, uh, for American diplomacy to regain a favored and trusted role in the wider world, even among our allies. And while the Trump administration was a setback in many respects, she would argue the obstacles we have created for ourselves and that the Biden administration must face go back well before Trump. So her main points are three uh, through the rest of the article, and I'll be very quick on this. Now, first, she says Biden will make two overarching changes to the foreign policy of Trump, and we've talked about this. He he will try to rebuild close relationships with allies and friends, and he'll re-engage in the process of multilateral problem-solving, but it'll be interesting to see what the Biden administration means by uh, multilateral. Second, Uh, Jessica Matthews says the biggest near term risk uh, from a foreign policy perspective, she sees, is the unraveling of the one China policy, which is purposefully is a policy that's been there since uh, the days of Nixon and which is purposefully a policy of ambiguity, (laughs) based on the polite fiction that China and Taiwan are one country that at some point will reunite peacefully. Uh, And Jessica Matthews argues that it's not inconceivable that war between the United States and China is a possibility given recent trends. And lastly, she says uh, the biggest quandary, the last point she makes is what she calls the biggest quandary for the Biden administration foreign policy. And that is, at its heart, the Biden administration is uh, all about U.S.-United States exerting leadership on a broad range of global issues. Uh, It will be an administration that is very much reform-minded on a global scale, more idealistic, more pro-democracy, more pro-human rights, and quick to criticize and sanction authoritarian tendencies in other governments. And yet, Matthews argues, this approach will increasingly divide the world into two camps that we already see today, the the democratic camp and the authoritarian camp. And this division exacerbated by the Biden administration, perhaps, will impede solving pressing global problems that Biden wants prioritized, because those problems like climate change, like nuclear proliferation, like dealing with future pandemics, requires the participation of the entire world, not just the democracies or not just those countries we have good relations with. So Matthews concludes that we should be, keep in mind that we need to be thoughtful about how we judge Biden's foreign policy going forward. If the U.S. under his watch, quote, can develop a strategically sound relationship with China, reassert itself in relations with Russia, pursue economic policies that see international economic growth as a win-win and not a zero-sum game, and recapture the confidence of allies and friends it will have done more than enough to be proud of, close quote, even if some of his broader objectives are more slow going. So Pat, those uh, two interesting articles in the past week.
0: Greg, that's uh, terrific. Thanks for bringing us uh, those insights. It's certainly uh, worth considering as uh, we, we uh, analyze what's uh, unfolding in, in the Biden administration foreign policy. Uh, I'm interested, though, in, in hearing more about what Mr. Macron uh, has to say about wokeness, uh, it, it would seem to me that uh, he would appreciate the United States coming around to uh, support of the Paris Accord on climate, and, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I guess I'll have to dig in. I that. The,
2: Pat, I think the wokeness he's referring to is the uh, Uh, By U.S. standards, I think it's fair to say the relatively hard line he's taking uh, with uh, 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 the Islamic presence in France and what it's uh, doing—what he would say it's doing—to French culture.
0: Right. Well, today we saw. Yeah, today we saw in the news that uh, the French um, legislature, the lower body, just passed a very aggressive uh, law on uh, promoting secular society and uh, prohibiting uh, extremist groups and people believe that that's aimed uh, specifically at uh, the muslim community in uh, in france because uh, we can we can all recall uh, the various uh, attacks and things that they've they've suffered there right. and uh, macron is uh, up for re-election next year against uh, probably marie le pen the uh, uh, the hard right the, Candidate, so he's probably trying to shore up his uh, uh, more stringent uh, credentials uh, against uh, against that, but also uh, the concern about what's been happening there. Um, Dick, uh, what's what's your take on uh, what what uh, Biden and company have in front of them in terms of uh, you know we, in the run up to the election? Everybody said, well, if Biden is back in, it's going to be transatlantic uh, hugs and kisses. Uh, but now we see Germany and and others uh, making trade deals with China, and openly uh, talking about the United States leadership in in that area, and others uh, being as as Breck is positioned today. Uh, you know, not necessarily something that they're ready for the hectoring moralism uh, to, uh, to prevail.
1: <laughs> uh, Well, first, I think Brett did an excellent job. I mean, the the reality is that uh, the world is the way it is and we have to deal with it as we find it. We need to think about where we are trying to go with our foreign policy and what we want to do. But I'm a a hardcore believer that foreign policy starts at home and we have to get our act together in in America. What do we stand for? What do we want from the world? How much internationalism do we want? Um, I don't get the feel that there are a lot of countries that think we're the hectoring, interfering, moralistic person they don't want to deal with. There are some, of course, and especially there are are adversaries like Russia and China. But uh, the world needs leadership and most of the problems that we're really going to be facing in the upcoming decades are multilateral international problems and they can't be solved by one nation alone. So my sense is that Mr. Biden is gonna engage in the world. Uh, he's got a uphill battle to push that rock up the hill. Um, but I think that engaging is the thing to do. The United States cannot and should not try to live as an isolationist nation.
0: Yeah, and and uh, Matthews uh, leaves, the, leaves her uh, um, our argument with with the notion that we need to rebuild at home before we can Hector abroad. Um, Amen. Brett, uh, and anything more on the, on Mr. Biden going ahead, going forward? Anything that you've seen so far that you like or, or are concerned
2: about? Yeah, I just wanted to add that uh, I think that both articles, my impression was at least that both articles uh, were not being critical of Biden's policies. They were being, uh, in their minds, realistic about, uh, how difficult it's going to be for those policies to achieve a great deal of success, uh, and certainly in his first term, because there are obstacles that Trump created, but there are also obstacles, uh, that United States foreign policies through past administrations, you know, all the way back to, uh, the Clinton administration, probably, uh, that, uh, uh, you know, that has tarnished America's reputation in the wider world for leadership qualities.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it, it really, the whole thing about the foreign policy and the relationships, it's relationships. And one of the things that Biden has going for him, he has been in the game uh, of foreign affairs for decades, and he knows a lot of these people and they know him so the idea that, you know, he'd pick up the phone and talk to Xi Jinping for two hours, uh, that's basically unprecedented in my experience where one leader talks to another for two hours unless they're sitting across a table like Ronald Reagan and Gorbachev or something of that sort. So Biden, Biden will personally engage on all these things and he's got a team that's, uh, that he's put in place that are... Really internationalists and in that uh, know what they're doing. Um, yeah. I cannot imagine that Mr. Trump would would have spent two hours on a phone call with anyone unless it's <laughs> well, really
2: Giuliani. Good point. Anyway,
0: <laughs> well, you're 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 right. I, I think uh, Biden is, is a well-known commodity around uh, the world and can pick up the phone and talk to people. Um, you know, we had a picture in the uh, the opening slide there of him with Nouriel Maliki. Uh, so, I mean, he's, he's spent a lot of time in the Middle East, a- Asia and Europe, and at least when he was with, uh, Al Maliki in, in Baghdad, he didn't get a shoe thrown at him. So he's, you know, uh, he's, he's got that going for him. Um, <laughs> let me mention, uh, you know, talking about, uh, Jessica Matthews, we had, the, the, the great pleasure of having a conversation with, uh, Dr. Matthews. Uh, last fall, October 15th, as you can see in the slide there, as part of our election 2020 coverage. And uh, with uh, Dr. Matthews was General John Allen. Uh, he's the head of Brookings, and she is uh, was the longtime president of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. And they talked to us with uh, uh, our uh, very own Dr. Tom Schwartz from Vanderbilt about America's place in the world. And I'll just uh, recommend that uh, our, our viewers take a look at the, uh, the rich library we have on our youtube.com TNWAC uh, YouTube channel. Uh, it is rich with uh, material like this conversation we had with uh, Jessica Matthews and John Allen and uh, the, the selection of uh, 12 other election 2020 programs. So uh, take advantage of uh, this collection of uh, good insights and perspectives on what's going on in the world. Uh, just because it uh, aired uh, live last October doesn't mean there's enduring value to uh, these longtime professionals' views of uh, of what's going on in the world. Okay, uh, anything uh, more, gentlemen, on the U.S. Uh, foreign policy and the obstacles uh, facing uh, Mr. Biden going forward?
1: Go well, ahead. I just throw out one, you know, one of the things, on the one hand, there is a pretty well-known list of things that we need to do and then things we're trying to do and how to engage the world there's also some kind of a black swan event other things are going to happen out there yeah. and uh, to be prepared to deal with them i think is 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 very important from the united states ability to lead in the world but i i don't get the sense that uh The world wants the United States to continue to be as it was under the Trump administration.
0: No, I think uh, I think the common position is that uh, going forward, the foreign policy um, will have some of the characteristics of of the good old days, but uh, it's going to have to be forward-looking and and taking on uh, the world as it
1: is today, not not as it was twenty years ago. And we have to
0: we have to be mindful that uh, Joe Biden has said that his top uh, priorities are uh, the pandemic the economy, uh, looking at the uh, problems of uh, polarization in the country and uh, uh, peace and justice and and looking at uh, how, how people are treated around the country. So uh, on that list, foreign policy uh, is in fifth place, although that's not as if the foreign policy team, the national security team, isn't working hard to, uh, to put a marker out there in places like, uh, Iran with the uh, the nuclear policy, um, you know, we, we we talked about the clock ticking uh, on that. Uh, you know, just today it was announced that uh, uh, President Biden will conduct policy with Saudi Arabia with the King. Uh, the the Crown Prince uh, um, Mohammed bin Salman is is not the head of government, not the head of state, and uh, President Biden will conduct uh, foreign policy and. Communications with his counterpart, who's the king, not the deputy, uh, not the uh, the crown prince. So um, you know he's he's looking at a new policy regarding Saudi Arabia, but he's also looking at breaking the uh, you know, some of the norms that were established under the last administration. All right, uh, boys and girls, let's move on to uh, a part of the world that we don't cover often enough, and we don't see covered often enough in press. Uh, but uh, an important part of the world and, and Africa is uh, going to be increasingly important uh, in the world. And we're gonna talk about the Sahel and uh, recent news that was made with uh, the French in that region. Just to, uh, to give you an idea of what we're talking about here, uh, this is a region of Africa that extends uh, from the Atlantic uh, across to uh, the edges of the, the Horn of Africa. And uh, to get your mind around how big this area is we're talking about, it basically could lay over the distance from the uh, coast of Lisbon on the Atlantic Ocean to Moscow across uh, Europe. So this is a a very large uh, piece of uh, territory uh, that uh, that we're talking about that has been troubled by Islamic insurgency. And uh, there has been a reaction by the international community uh, to help uh, boost uh, the security and stability of these states in that region, uh, in particular Mali, uh, but we're also talking about uh, countries like Mauritania, Burkina Faso, Niger, uh, parts of Nigeria, and uh, including Chad. Um, so the uh, the news recently was uh, Mr. Macron uh, convening a, a meeting with the uh, the G5 uh, Sahel Joint uh, uh, Group and um, his uh, conversations with them regarding the, uh, the French position uh, in, the, uh, in the Sahel. And the G5 Sahel uh, joint force is a sub-regional organization established in 2014 as an intergovernmental partnership between Burkina Faso, Chad, Mali, Mauritania, and Niger. And the French have been uh, working with them uh, for quite some time and, and what they're trying to do is one, to combat terrorism, drug, traf- drug trafficking, and, uh, and human trafficking. Uh, also to contribute to uh, the restoration of the state authority, which has been diminished, and the, the return of uh, displaced persons and refugees as a result of the uh, political violence uh, going on there, uh, particularly uh, from the uh, Islamic extremist uh, militants in the area. They're also trying to facilitate humanitarian operations and a delivery of aid and um, uh, Dick I think you were talking about Germany's role in the area and Germany in particular is interested in boosting its uh, humanitarian support and uh, contributing aid uh, but there are other countries that are providing uh, military forces and you can see uh, some of these uh, uh, units spread out across uh, the Sahel. Uh, the G5 uh, Sahel Joint Force is also trying to uh, uh, contribute to the implementation of development strategies that, that uh, those countries uh, are facilitating. Here's a, just a, a quick laydown of uh, the, the kinds of operations, and these are our various multinational uh, and sub regional uh, efforts. The United Nations uh, created a force um, called uh, MINUSMA, uh, dealing specifically with uh, Mali. And uh, that stands for the United Nations Multidimensional Integrated Stabilization Mission in Mali. And fortunately, there's no pop quiz at the end because that would be a tough one to, to come back up with. So just, we'll just go with MANUSMA. Uh, it was established by the UN Security Council in uh, 2013 and its mandate is to uh, uh, provide security in support of uh, the political uh, stabilization of Mali in response to a push by Islamic uh, extremists uh, that uh, were seizing territory in the north of the country. Uh, There are 57 countries that contribute with military personnel, including uh, countries in the region like Burkina Faso, Chad, and others, uh, Bangladesh, Senegal, uh, Egypt, Niger, Guinea, Germany, and China. So that's that's just one of them. And you can see also there the, the Sahel force And then Operation Barkhane, uh, the French uh, deployment, uh, currently up to uh, 5,000 troops. And that was the gist of the conversation that uh, uh, President Macron had with the G-5 countries. And uh, Barkhane is uh, the French uh, deployment of uh, 5,000 troops. Uh, It started in August uh, 2014. Um, Actually, it it, uh, extended back before that to a uh, another operation called Serval, But in 2014, uh, it uh, was transformed into its current uh, composition of about 5,000 uh, uh, soldiers with a budget of about $800 million a year. And the French have lost uh, over 50 uh, of its troops in battles uh, in the region. So the, Fran- the French definitely have uh, blood and treasure um, uh, invested in the area. In January of this year, uh, there was a conversation, um, President Emmanuel Macron was talking about withdrawing uh, the French troops to make an adjustment in the, the military operations in the Sahel. And it was uh, probably based on the, the fact that the French are looking at the, uh, the investment um, of what uh, is now up to over a billion dollars um, in 2020 and the French uh, Ministry of uh, Defenses signaled that it uh, was ready to withdraw troops. But the conversation that uh, Macron uh, just had with the G5 uh, countries in the Sahel, uh, he's uh, backed off of that and uh, has not ruled out um, withdrawals in the future, but said that there would be uh, no immediate reduction. So this is uh, uh, where, where we are in, the, in Africa with the, uh, the French commitment uh, to the Sahel and uh, you can see the uh, commitment by the local uh, nations in the area to uh, the security of the region again this this all stems back from the uh, islamists who have moved in to that uh, part of africa and have been uh, disrupted to the uh, the politics stability uh, they've uh, kidnapped uh, large numbers of of uh, residents have forced uh, people to flee and become refugees and uh, you know as as we know uh, Dick and Brecht, this, this part of the world is uh, uh, challenged even on a good day to be able to provide uh, for its uh, citizens. So the Islamic insurgency in, in some of these regions has really made it difficult for the, uh, the governments to, uh, to provide uh, security and uh, assist the, their citizens in, in moving forward.
1: You know, Pat, the, the, the reason the French, of course, are so heavily involved is, is this is all taking place in what were mostly French colonies before they became independent countries. And, right. and the, you're absolutely right that it's a huge, huge area. Um, I had the pleasure of uh, being able to fly into Timbuktu, which is... Uh, really really out there you have to really want to get there if you would you know to go there it's not on anybody's easy crossroads and uh the infrastructure is minimal so and, and i first met encountered the word Twadic, which most people will think oh that's a that's a volkswagen right isn't that a volkswagen kind of thing Well, it's also the name of an ethnic people that live around Timbuktu and live in the desert, they're desert nomads. And they have uh, been fiercely anti-French for decades if not hundreds of years. So there's a lot going on, but all that from Chad to Mali, Mauritania is mostly a huge empty space um not chat on the coast and but other than that there's not much in there so and I never I always had an interest in being assigned to Wagadugu because I really like the name <laughs> in Burkino oh, yeah
0: I threw the, I threw the map up here just just so you could say that
1: oh ah, well thank you very much <laughs> so I mean you know in in Chad you know that's a good good French word there so there's it's a big area.
0: Yeah, um, and you know, it's it's Africa is increasingly important to the uh, to the United States uh, in terms of stability. And, and uh, not too long ago, we established an Africa Command uh, yeah. for for military deployments. And we didn't touch on it, but the the U.S. military has uh, been very active uh, in Niger and and other countries in the region with special forces and intelligence. Uh, and so forth, it's not included in any of these uh, lists here, but uh, we could uh, go into a long uh, yeah. dissertation about what the United States is doing in the region as well.
1: You know, you got me interested, uh, so I, I whipped up my pad here. And uh, The organization for, and forces that are part of the uh, MINUSMA, there are dozens of different countries that have sent forces, including Germany, which has the intelligence portfolio for the thing. There's an Irish Army Ranger wing, right? Netherlands has been there. Portugal has some people. Romania has four helicopters that are available things. Sri Lanka has 250 personnel, right? So this is a United Nation effort. And of course, the United States has some troops there as well, but we don't talk about that much.
0: Well, you know, we had uh, there was a big incident about a couple of American soldiers who were killed in Niger uh, a few years back in the yeah. early days of the uh, Trump administration. Uh, but uh, the the presence continues, and it's it's a uh, increasingly important area, especially in terms of the footprint of Al Qaeda and uh, and these Islamist terrorist groups that are affiliated with Al Qaeda. All right. Um, so that's uh, the Sahel, uh, interesting place, uh, interesting things going on. Now we're gonna turn to the World Trade Organization and just uh, a little brief conversation about uh, the, the new uh, head of the WTO, uh, Dr. Ngozi Okonjo-Iwila, and uh, she was just named uh, on Monday and will take, uh, take charge of the World Trade Organization um, come March 1st. And uh, this is an interesting development. Um, uh, Dick, you know, you're, you're familiar with uh, these transnational organizations and uh, doctor Konjo Okonjo-Awila is the first woman to head the WTO and the first uh, national to come from Africa uh, to head the WTO. So this is um, a significant event. Uh, she was uh, previously uh, a Nigerian economist and former finance minister She's held a a number of posts. She was uh, briefly the uh, foreign uh, minister and she spent uh, 25 years in the World Bank uh, rising to the the number two position as managing director of the World Bank. So um, uh, she uh, takes charge of the WTO, which uh, is, is an increasingly important organization as the United States and others try to sort out a lot of these trade and tariff uh, issues and we'll talk about the WTO uh, in just a minute. But uh, uh, Dr. oconjo Awila uh, is uh, taking the the helm of, uh, of the WTO at a difficult time. Uh, the WTO, as as uh, as you know, is uh, uh, in charge of writing the trade rules, settling disputes, and encouraging the flows of uh, goods and services. But uh, it's been criticized for falling short on a number of these fronts especially uh, failing to advance uh, new trade negotiations and adequately police unfair uh, trade practices and economic uh, practices uh, from China. So at a time of uh, growing protectionism, as we see tariffs um, posted, the United States imposing tariffs on European goods and Canadian uh, goods and Chinese goods, um, the World Trade Organization, uh, is, is seen as uh, challenged uh, to keep up with uh, what's happening in the world. So it's interesting to see uh, a new face there. Uh, I'm sure we all wish uh, Dr. Konjo Awila uh, well, uh, as she uh, takes the helm of the WTO. It's an important organization. And um, we, uh, we hope that uh, they play an important part in resolving a lot of these uh, trade issues. Just uh, again, a reminder that what the uh, WTO does, It's uh, the principal international trade organization uh, for uh, developing trade negotiations and uh, settling uh, disputes. One uh, consequence of uh, uh, Dr. Okonjo taking office has been, uh, taking this office, has been uh, a a surge in in popularity for her and the WTO among uh, her fellow Nigerians. Uh, There's now trending uh, something called the Ankara uh, Army and, and Ankara comes from uh, the word describing uh, the, uh, the uh, traditional uh, Nigerian distinctive uh, dress. So uh, there is on Twitter, a large number of Ankara Army uh, contestants for who can be the best uh, posed in the full outfit of uh, head tie and the, the African uh, wax cloth known as Ankara, a uh, single strand necklace, and and clear uh, clear glasses. So that's uh, that's something you can look for on your your Twitter feed, uh, Breck, uh, as uh, as you go through your your daily uh, tweets. Uh, Wait, can, I, can I? will I... look for
2: that. I definitely
0: will you look can, for that. You can join the uh, the Ankara Army.
2: And can I just uh, give
1: a shout out to? Uh... One of my favorite programs, Christiane Amanpour is an Iranian descent, but grew up in the UK and was a very very well-known international correspondent for a number of years. She has a talk program. Some of you out there may have actually heard of a guy named Charlie Rose, who was on PBS for a number of years, who got in trouble, Uh, and then so they, they pulled him off. But Christiane Amanpour has a discussion. It's on PBS2 here in Nashville. And she had your new head of the WTO uh, in discussion about three or four days ago. And she had two other ladies with her. One was Chris, uh, Carmen Lawrence, who was the prime minister of Australia and the young lady named Vojsa Osmani, who is running for prime minister of Kosovo. And their basic discussion was women in politics and how more women ought to really get involved. So it was an interesting discussion. and I recommend Amanpour and Company on PBS, too. If you, it's on in, uh, in the evenings, but you can DVR it. Uh, so you can watch it whenever you want.
0: All right. Yep. Um, I, I catch that once in a while. She is an uh, exceptional journalist. She has uh, walked the walk before talking the talk. Um, yep. We have a, a question from Robert, uh, who asks about the French investment in the Sahel. Is, is it the same as the French Foreign Legion? And I, I think the uh, the French Foreign Legion was most notably in North Africa, uh, Algeria and so forth. Uh, Dick, are, are you familiar with well, they the were French, French
1: Foreign Legion? Yeah, they were all around. They were, and the, part of the thing with the French Foreign Legion is they would take a multi, it was a multinational force. You did not have to be a French citizen in order to serve in it, and it was not a draft, it was a volunteer organization. But all of the French colonies, uh, of which there were many in Africa, relied on that French foreign legion force uh, to put down rebellions and keep order, as well as to train local military and police forces.
0: Yeah, and I think the um, the forces, the French, The 5,000 in the Sahel countries are uh, the standing French army uh, forces, not necessarily foreign legionnaires. Uh, Robert also mentions that uh, uh, his concern about uh, our perception of uh, President Trump, um, suggesting it might be uh, appropriate to have somebody uh, taking the Trump position on some of these issues. I I think, what we've uh, discussed here in terms of the Trump administration's foreign policy is an assessment of policy um, we're the World Affairs Council is a non nonpartisan organization and we try not to criticize uh, this or that politician uh, based on the personal uh, prerequisites uh, but uh, we do provide analysis and uh, commentary on foreign policy and and based on the, our personal experiences and and what we say here is is our personal point of view, but we will take that aboard, Robert, to uh, try to invite uh, guest panelists who might provide a, a broader uh, conversation. And I think uh, we've had some guests uh, guests in the past who have have uh, been uh, on the other side of the aisle in in terms of assessments of foreign policy. But uh, we we try to uh, be objective in in what we're talking about in terms of. Uh, the U.S. position on some of these things in the world. Uh, Steve Musick asks, what are the U.S. domestic policy imperative policies uh, that could boost relations with the EU? Breck, I think this goes back to your conversation about obstacles for Biden's foreign policy and uh, this transatlantic relationship that everybody thought was gonna be sweet, sweet uh, uh, kisses. And, and now we're, we're looking at kind of a rocky road.
2: I think that's right. And Dick mentioned, I think that probably the biggest single issue where the U.S. could make a big impression, well, two, NATO is one, but certainly climate change uh, is the other one. I think that uh, the Western European nations are uh, absolutely solid on wanting to do something substantive for climate change, and I think that they very much want to see the U.S. in that. The other thing I think is that uh, uh, I I think the Europeans would – uh, right now, I, I think the West Europeans look at the Biden administration without a lot of confidence that there's going to be uh, a consistency in United States foreign policies from one administration to the next. And uh, the shifts in policies, regardless of what you think about those policies, uh, the last uh, eight, the last five years have been breathtaking. Or I guess the last actually from Obama to Trump and then from Trump to Trump. Uh, uh, to Biden, they've been breathtaking, and I, you know, I uh, probably most foreign policy experts, apart from the policies themselves, think that rapid shifts from one direction to another are not uh, don't serve don't serve the United States well because we become un- we become perceived as unreliable uh, when we're signing treaties or entering into agreements or whatever we might be doing. And uh, anyway. Uh, I don't know what to do about that but I think it's a worrisome aspect uh, when the when the when Europe is looking at us.
0: Well that's especially obvious well, when you look at the Iran nuclear deal the Iranians uh, say hey you know why should we be so quick to jump uh, jump back into compliance and they they uh, stayed in compliance for quite some time after the United States uh, the Trump administration withdrew from the JCPOA and and one of the arguments is you know in, in 4 years you might have Another administration that does something totally different and, and uh, cancels the agreement again. So uh, you know the reliability is um, is an issue. In uh, you know that's part of our uh, our democracy is that uh, you, you win the election you you write the rules. Uh, but it's it is it does make it different difficult in foreign policy. Dick, any any recollections from from your uh, career as a foreign service officer about uh, transitions and administrations that made foreign policy continuity uh, difficult?
1: Well, for most of my career, I mean, the, the, the cardinal rule that you know, domestic bickering and politics stops at the water's edge was, was the rule. Um, there was a big shift uh, with the Vietnam War when how it came to an end. Uh, Clinton came in as also, he had a rather different relationship with the US military. Than his predecessors had had, um, by and large, for most of my career, the principles that we were that we had were shared by both sides of the of the aisle, and it's only been in recent years that the that the real bickering has started. So, it's a different world we're living in now. And I think your point about trust is spot on, Pat. I mean, if I were a a European or an Asian country or an African country, I would really kind of be hedging my bets about how much we could count on the United States in the long run for some of these things. So it's up to us to to get our act together and change the way we do things. Otherwise, uh, we're not gonna have the influence we once had in the world for better or worse. Well,
0: look, at, uh, look at TPP four years ago. Um...
1: Yeah, uh,
0: a dozen or so countries that had negotiated in good faith with the United States for the TPP saw yeah. the election come and uh, wipe that away. Uh, well, so, uh, we know, we
1: have tariff uh, we have tariffs slapped on all sorts of people like, like in Europe. I mean, wait a minute, why are we why are we playing that tit for tat tariff game with the Europeans?
0: Yeah, and the Canadians. Well, yeah. getting back to St- getting back to Steve's question on the dom- domestic imperatives, Uh, I think the the main transatlantic issues are uh, issues like uh, NATO and uh, uh, restoring the alliance to uh, a position where our allies are questioning whether the US believes in, uh, what is it? Article five that uh, attack on one is an attack on all. Um, So we have the defense and national security issues. With the Europeans in terms of domestic policy, uh, I would say you know a stretch would be uh, you know you talked about climate change. That's that's both a domestic and a global issue, and the Europeans are certainly concerned about that. But perhaps also uh, as you talked about these tariffs that are uh, placed on certain things, and I know the Germans have been sensitive to the potential uh, tariffs on uh, automobiles, um, which is curious because they build so many of them here. Um, you know, we have Volkswagen in uh, Tennessee and BMW and Mercedes in the Southeast. So, you know, domestic imperatives are probably just to restore solid trading relationships and, and get past these uh, these tariffs. And, you know, we're still waiting to see the uh, the, uh, uh, the Brexit uh, implications yeah. for relationships. What's the
1: UK going to do?
0: Yeah, trade agreement. You know, interestingly, uh,
1: for example, the Hungarians have have basically given up on getting vaccines from the the European Union, and they've cut a deal with China. So they are now using Chinese vaccine to immunize the Hungarians from COVID.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks for the questions, uh, everyone. And uh, we will... uh, Move along here. Uh, Brett, do you want to uh, take us out with the uh, question of the week?
2: Uh, absolutely, Pat. Uh, so the question of the week was the leader of this country, head of the nationalist BJP, has pushed to change school curricula to downplay the country's secular roots, which reflect the country's founders' goals to promote peace between majority Hindus and the sizable Muslim minority and other religious communities. And the answer is B, India. All right. Hey, and Pat, Hey Pat, if I, if you for one second, I just want to give a shout out to we were talking about Jessica Tuckman Matthews. And as a historian, her mother was a Pulitzer Prize winning, relatively popular historian by the name of Barbara Tuckman, who wrote books such as The Guns of August and The Distant Mirror and The Proud Tower. And for those listeners who are looking for a good history book, and those are books across medieval France, World War One. She wrote about uh uh, modern warfare in the post, uh, uh, well, I guess modern, she wrote a book on, uh, on modern warfare. Anyway, look, she is a very good writer and for listeners who yeah. are looking for a history book to read perusing, uh, some of her works, uh, would be a good thing. And she died back in 1989, but, uh, she is a timeless writer, in my opinion, Barbara Tuckman.
0: For sure. And, and I think, uh, the guns of August is, is the yeah, book. classic, um, And it it has given rise to that metaphor, the guns of August that people use that now to talk about any incipient uh, conflict that's about to emerge. Here we are at a guns of August moment. Uh, You're exactly right. But Dr. Jessica Matthews, uh, I would would highly recommend people take a listen to her and uh, General Allen. And the other in the series uh, that focused on America's place in the world was with Ambassador Thomas Pickering and uh, Ambassador John Kornblum. Uh, They, too, uh, had a one-hour session with us and talked about America's place in the world. And both of those are really worth uh, a listen. You can catch those either on the youtube.com slash TNWAC channel or anywhere you get podcasts. And that's under the uh, Global Tennessee Podcast brand, where you can find it exactly on soundcloud.com slash TNWAC. Last thing, uh, just a reminder, please uh, become a member of the World Affairs Council so we can pay the soundcloud.com bill every month um, and and continue to provide uh, archives uh, for all these wonderful programs and uh, to to pay the light bill over there at Ambassador Bauer's place so he's not not in the cold and dark. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, everybody stay warm. Uh, Thanks for uh, watching the the program today. We will be back next week at uh, 1 p.m. on Wednesday. Take a look at our calendar We'll be updating that today with uh, some of these great programs we have coming. And we do have uh, Waiting in the Wings, a special guest that uh, we'll be announcing uh, shortly for a, uh, an episode of Global National with Carl Dean. That's it for today. Uh, gentlemen, thank you once again.
2: And,
1: uh, thank you, Pat. Out. Thank All you, right, Pat. Have great week. Stay warm. Good
2: to see you.